0: What's going on? You are listening to the Prayerfully Woke podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Walker McCowan, and I am joined in this episode by my good friend Jonathan Garlock and recent friend David Garlock. Although they are of no relation, you will find out in this episode uh, that they think along the same lines. David is an amazing, amazing Christian thinker. Uh, He's he's a, a criminal justice reform activist. Um, he has an amazing, amazing testimony of what God has done in his life, and he was even in the movie Just Mercy. That's right, the critically acclaimed movie Just Mercy, following the story of uh, lawyer Brian Stevenson. He was in that movie for about 15 seconds, so we talk about that in this podcast as well. So I'm going to let this podcast speak for itself. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you love the episode, we do ask that you share it with a friend and let them know about the good work going on here at Prayerfully Woke. Thank you so much. Let's dive into this episode with David Garlock.
1: Yo, this is Walker McCallum, and I'm Jonathan Garlock, and we are Prayerfully Woke. All right, my friends, welcome back to the Prayerfully Woke podcast here with my co-host Walker McCallan. What's up? And uh, we're joined with a very special guest today. Uh, He's got a great, a fantastic, I would say, last name. We are joined today by Mr. David Garlock. Uh, We found out a few weeks ago, or maybe last week, uh, that we're no relation, uh, but it's an honor to have David Garlock. He's got an amazing testimony.
2: Uh, How are you doing today, David? I'm doing great, and uh, it's definitely glad to be on here, and definitely uh, nice that we were able to connect via social media, and it's always interesting, you know, because our last name is so unfamiliar, and then you're always like, wait, somebody with my last name, are we we connected? And then, like, we found out yours is from German origins, and mine's from Scottish, so it's always interesting there.
1: Right, well, I've got my grandpa was David Garlock, and my uncle is David Garlock, and so that's... That's how I came across you on Twitter, and like you said, I'm glad I'm glad that we came across each other, and you've got a powerful uh, testimony of what God has done in your life, and it's an honor uh, for us to have you on. So can you tell us uh, to start off with a little bit about your childhood and um, some uh, circumstances that led uh, to where you are now?
2: Yeah, and so, I mean, one thing I always talk about is, you know, if we all had a... A picture dictionary and you looked up the word dysfunctional family you would have seen my family on there you know Um, my dad was in Vietnam and so he had a lot of issues with um, PTSD Uh, my mom and him got married when they were younger and they were they were good parents but actually unfit parents and so really our whole childhood was full of dysfunction arguments fighting Throughout the period of our childhood, my sister, my brother, and myself were all kicked out of the house at different times. And really, it was when my brother was kicked out of the house that both his life and my life forever changed. And this happened out in Washington. And so when my brother was kicked out, he went to a receiving home, which is like a group home for kids who were in the, the custody of the state. But I've Um, I've
1: heard you talk before, and we're not talking like a 16- or 17-year-old kid kicked out of the house.
2: No, my brother was 13 at this time. So here he is, a 13-year-old, and the reason he was kicked out of the house is um, because he had gotten involved with drugs and alcohol. And so my dad had given given him one last chance, you know, and he failed. And so the— way that my dad dealt with it was to just get rid of him. And really, that's the, the way my dad dealt with problems, you know. He just got rid of them. He didn't want to deal with them. He didn't want to try to resolve it, you know. And, I mean, we grew up in the church. We we were always at church on Sundays and Sunday school and youth group and throughout this whole time, you know. And so you would think that somebody that was in the church would have better coping skills and ability to resolve situations. And so just thinking back, I was always like, wait, why wasn't this handled differently? Why didn't we go to counseling? Why didn't we go to the pastors and try to work this out? You know, And that was never a, a option for what we had endured. Mm-hmm. So when my brother was in this home, there was a guy that got out of prison in South Carolina, moved to Washington State, befriended the person that was running this home. And at that point, the only reason he befriended him was where he could have access to people in the house. And it's then when he started molesting my brother. And so this went on for a couple months. And then this gentleman forced my brother to move out of the home with him. And a couple months later, um, he and my brother went down to California because my mom and my stepdad were living down there. So when I was 9 and my brother was uh, 12, my parents got divorced. And so that was another catalyst that just added more dysfunction in our family. And when my mom and stepdad were brought back up to Washington, it was given the fact where this person was going to let them live there for free and they were going to be in a better situation than they were in California. But the reason he was doing this was where he could have access to me. So the first time I had seen my mom in two years was January 1st, 1991. And when I went over to see her, it was great. It was amazing to see my mom and just spend that time with her. But later that night, this gentleman wanted to play hide-and-go-seek. So as an 11-year-old, you're like, okay, this is great. But that's when the sexual abuse began with me. And so for a eight-year period, the sexual abuse happened with my brother and me. And the, the thing is, is I was still going to church at this time, you know. And I – it was difficult to be in church because here I am being taught that God's loving, that he's – Uh, forgiving and he's this uh, amazing God of grace and mercy but here I am being abused and so I, I knew about God but I really didn't know God and so I had that book knowledge but not a heart knowledge and so this this abuse continued to go on you know and as my brother and I got older It began to get more physical, you know, where he had tried to kill my brother and me numerous times. Uh, Just about every night, he was beating the crap out of us, you know, and it was just a constant uh, physical ordeal, you know. And it was to the point where we came to a realization that we had to do something about this. So, when I was 19 and my brother was 22, we made an irrational decision to take the person's life. Mm -hmm. So, it was in June of 1999. It was a Monday night. We had taken his life, you know, and they didn't find the body for four months. So, here I am. I'm free from the prison of the sexual abuse and the the physical abuse, but I've created another prison of just having this thought process that I had taken somebody's life, and the way that I coped with it was drugs and alcohol, because I had to stay high, I had to stay drunk, I had to get away, I had to disassociate from what I had happened, you know, and one thing I learned to do throughout this abuse is I became a very good actor because I had to be around when I was around church folks when I re- was around family when I was around folks at school folks I played sports with I had to act as if I had to create this persona around them where they wouldn't know what had happened and during this 4 month period I was acting there too because I let anybody know what had happened not only the abuse that had to happen, but being in a place where I took somebody's life. So you're you're abused from eleven
1: to nineteen, so that eight years this goes on, and I've heard your story before, so I I know that this not only goes for eight an eight year period of time, but also covers many states. Were you? I mean, your story to me sounds like this guy was not only a, a sexual predator. Uh, but it, he almost kidnapped you and your brother. You were being held against your will uh, with this guy. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it, that that's definitely right. You know, and the the thing there is that throughout this whole ordeal, you know, people always ask like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know, but it, it's easy when you've never experienced that to ask all these questions into to say what you should have done, you know, but when you're 11 years old and you're being told by this person that has just stolen your innocence that he's going to kill you, he's going to kill your brother, and he's going to kill your family if you ever tell anybody, that leaves such a a profound impression on you, and every time you're hearing the same thing, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to do this if you tell anybody in just that that fear just that that knowledge of okay this guy will do this you know yep. because he talked about the time he spent in prison and um just later on when the abuse became more physical we saw what he would do because there was an instance where I was where we were working in Louisiana and he had followed me into the bathroom and he had pushed me up against this uh paper towel dispenser and started choking me and the next thing i know is he's punching me and i'm coming back too so i knew really that solidified like okay this guy is gonna kill me at any given time you know so that just like expounded that fear and that knowledge that okay this guy will kill me if it comes down to it
3: david so so in those early years like how did this affect like your mental health like I understand that in instances like this it it can give a child a a kind of fight or uh, or flight response you know it's just kind of like you're just every day you're kind of just living for the next day you're just trying to survive you know you're just trying to you know get through it but like what was the internal dialogue with yourself like in terms of your confidence your self-esteem like how did that impact you and your development into adolescence?
2: Well, I mean it goes back into the the thought process as far as just wearing the different masks. I mean, I really didn't know who I was. Yeah. Because I didn't have a chance to really develop. I didn't have a chance to experience childhood and adolescence as other people because of the abuse, because of just this thought process that, you know, this person is potentially going to kill us at any time. And um, especially towards the end, you know, when we were working in Alabama, this we, we didn't have a life. We didn't have friends. We went to work. We came home. That was it this gentleman would stand outside of Shoney's the restaurant we worked at and he would look in the windows and watch us and if we were flirting with another waitress or we were flirting with the customer when we got home he confronted us and beat the crap out of us you know so this was a thing where we we always were on guard as far as like looking around like is he watching us and then he got to the point where he would tell our managers and stuff that he was our half-brother. And so he befriended them in a way where he could call up and, like, hey, what's David doing? What's Joe doing? And they'd tell them, you know. They wouldn't – they didn't think that, okay, this is kind of weird that this guy's calling up. But they're like, oh, it's his half-brother. So, you know, they're, he's just checking up on him. So it was this this – this like perfect storm he created, right? That allowed him to get any information he needed. So, so some
1: might say, well, now you're, you've hit puberty, you're 17 years old, you have some muscles, why not push back? But what when you're talking, I'm wondering if every time uh, he gets physical with you, every time he gets violent, if you don't revert back to that 11 year old kid, when it started, is that what happens in your mind?
2: A- absolutely, you know, and then the the thing, too, is that he played my brother and me against each other. Mm. So here we are. He is making us hate each other. He's making us despise each other and not come together. Because he knows that if we came together, we'd be able to overcome him and be able to escape the situation. So you not only have the thought process of reverting in just getting back to that child, you know, but the aspect that he's playing both my brother and me against each other. And, I mean, it's still that thought process is st- still stuff I deal with today. I mean, there's times where my wife and I have had arguments and stuff, and I don't get in the argument. I shut down, I close down, you know. And so the thing is, is like it's such a a mechanism, and it's the way I cope, it's the way I deal with stuff, you know, it was something I learned then, that the easiest way, and the way where I wouldn't have to experience as much violence is to just shut down, and so it's stuff I have to work on today, and that's, what, 29, 30 years ago that this occurred, you know, so it's still this process that I'm overcoming different things from the abuse.
1: I've I've got to ask you a quick question. I think Walker has something for you too, but we're both pastors. Is there something the church should have recognized when this 11, 12, 13 year old kid, whatever is showing up to, to meetings and to youth group and, and whatnot. Is there something the church missed or were you just really good at hiding it? I don't want this to happen in my, you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. I I, 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 I think I was really good at hiding it, but, um, I think really where we need to. Uh, so I do work with. I, I advocate for people who've committed sexual offenses now, and so people are always like, "Wait, what in the world?" You know, <laughs> right? But it's a it's an amazing way for me to show grace and mercy. You know, God has forgiven me. He has shown me this much, this so much grace, forgiveness and mercy, you know, and so I do the same thing. Second Corinthians uh, 1, 3, and 4 says God is all God of all comforts and mercies, and he's shown it to me, and we're to show it to the next person. So that's why I advocate for this population, because I know in my faith that everybody is redeemable. Mm-hmm. So I do not believe that the sex offender registry does any good. Because 95% of the offenses, the sexual offenses happening right now are not by people who are on the registry. So if we take that money that is being spent on this registry and we spend it on education, if we spend it on prevention, if we teach pastors, if we teach uh, teachers, if we teach social workers really how to have conversations and to allow these kids to feel more comfortable and vulnerable, then it can help them open up. It could help the healing process, you know, because uh, when you look at it, 35 to 75% of people who have been sexually abused can go on to sexually abuse other individuals. So, I mean, it's, I, I, when I, I speak with people, I never talk about that to justify what somebody has done, but it allows you to understand where they're coming from. Because when somebody is sexually and physically abused, they are, this happens typically by somebody who's in authority position over them. So they get this distorted view of love. If that distorted view of love isn't challenged and they really understand what true love is, that it's not based on any sexual gratifications, feels, touch, etc. then that's how they're going to go into life and they're going to express that same love in a different way. So I think really where we need to get is prevention. We need to get to education. We need to have more talks like this, you know, where people who have been sexually, physically abused come in and share in churches, share in places where people who have been harmed Are empowered where they feel like okay I relate to that person I can open up about this because there's at least one person everywhere where I speak where somebody will come up and they'll be like I was sexually abused when I was eight years old I've never told anybody but your story has given me power I I feel like I can talk about this now
3: man everything you're saying uh, reminds me of um the The passage in um Exodus chapter twenty whenever uh, God is talking about uh, the Ten Commandments, right, and he's talking about how um for those who follow this there there will be blessings that will be lavished generation upon generation, but for those who disobey, there is a curse for generation upon generation now, in my interpretation of that, and I think I think um Jonathan would agree, it's not like you know God is just laying it on them whenever they disobey, but it's that there is an intrinsic consequence to every sin and every sin that we receive causes us to sin in turn other another way that chris green has put it in another episode is that those who sin have oftentimes been sinned against and what i hear you talking about is this cycle right of people who oftentimes people who sexually offend have themselves been um offended in some way shape or form um it is it's what sin does to us And and thanks be to God that Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin, you know, breaks it over our life. Um, So, you know, people like yourself, people um, can testify to this redemption. You know, I don't know, not really a question there, but that's just what's going on in my mind is this cycle of sin, the cycle of sin that so many people seem to be trapped in, Um, even if you just look at not just, um, sexual offenders, but a lot of problems in society, a lot of systemic issues come from cycles of sin, whether it's racial, or economic, or uh, socioeconomic, or whatever it is. And there, are cycles, there are cycles of sin that have to be broken in Jesus' name, and if they're not, they will continue to have these problems.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it, when you really think about prison, you think about people that are dealing with criminal justice reform. You know, one of the things that you always hear is hurt people hurt people. A- and that is so very true. But what we have to also realize is that's true in that aspect, you know, but what is amazing about it is helped people help people mm. and healed people heal people. You know, and that's why it's so important, you know, for people who have stories similar to mine, you know, who are able when when they go through the healing process, you know, and they are encouraged, you know, and they feel that it's a prompting of the Holy Spirit to go out and to share their story, you know, that it provides that healing. It provides that safe place for somebody to just come up and say, okay, I'm in the same place. I need that healing. I need to just release everything that's within me because there, there's so much that it is within somebody, so much shame, so much. Um, blaming themselves for what had happened because for so long I blamed myself for what had happened I, I, it wasn't until I was in this behavior modification program in prison where I was reading these self-help books about child sexual abuse where I realized that I wasn't to blame it was this person that had this issue and he's the reason this happened it wasn't anything I did and being able to forgive myself that that freed me in so many different ways.
1: Okay, so uh, that kind of transitions us. Um, the The person that did the abuse to you and your brother is now gone, he's out of the picture. And for four months, uh, you're living uh, what I've heard you describe as your own creative prison. You've been living in a prison of this man's abuse and now you're living in your own creative prison, but then uh, the authorities get involved. Can you take us down uh, that road of your story?
2: Yeah, so October 29th, 1999, I was working at Shoney's. It was Friday night. I was supposed to work from 4 to 10 o'clock that night, 9 o'clock. Some detectives came in, wanted to to question me, Um, so they had talked to the manager first, uh, asked me to go to the city jail with them, and so I went. We um, talked for a couple hours. I partially confessed to the crime, and so they arrested me. And here I am. I had just turned 20 years old on October 5th. So 24 days into my 20s, I'm being arrested for a murder charge. And so in Alabama, they're really big as far as giving the death penalty. So here I am. I'm in the Bible Belt. I'm thinking I'm going to get the death penalty. I'm thinking I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. So that weekend was... Probably the hardest time of my life because here I am thinking my life is over. I'm going to get the death penalty. I don't know how long I have to live. And so I'm just crying myself to sleep the whole time. So November 1st, it was Monday morning. The uh, detective came over. It's 8 a.m. They take me back to the city jail for more questioning. So I'm sat in this interrogation room. So it's probably a 5 by 7 room. And I'm in there for 7 hours by myself. Oh, wow. Just think about sitting in a room by yourself for seven hours. You have a lot of time to think. So I was thinking about the abuse. I was thinking about the murder. I was thinking about everything that had happened and transpired and led up to me being there right there. And so I finally called the detective in and I confessed. I told him exactly everything that had happened. And it was right then that this big weight was taken off of my chest. And so I I finally felt some relief it wasn't like i felt free but i felt some relief for getting all of this stuff out you know and the detective said that he was sexually abused himself you know so i was able first
1: person you'd ever told about the sexual abuse
2: yeah wow and so there was this relief there and then he handcuffed me he took me down to his cop car and we were headed back to the county jail So when we get in the cop car, I'm asking him, I'm like, hey, am I going to get the death penalty? Am I going to get life without? And I'm sitting there and he turns to me and he's like, do you believe in God? I'm thinking, man, I'm not studying God right now. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to end up dead? Am I going to spend the rest of my life in prison? And I keep asking him, am I going to get the death penalty? Am I going to get life without? And he's steadily like, do you believe in God? And so finally, I'm like, yes, I believe in God. He's like, you need to seek him now. So that's where the, the thought process, like, okay, I need to do something. So when I got back to the county jail, I asked for a Bible, and they gave me a little New Testament Bible. So growing up in the church, most people would go to Matthew or John or Romans, you know, but, you know, read the Bible throughout, you know. So I just went to Revelations. I got to Revelations 3.20 that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and allows me to come in, I will come in and sup with them. And it was right then, you know, I was like, God, I need you right now. I just need you. I don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. I don't know how much time I'm going to do, but I need you. And just like instantaneously, this peace and joy came over me. I, I was no longer fearing or worried about what's going to happen. And here I am. I just start dancing. I started singing these songs that I sang in youth group, like uh, Our God's an Awesome God and Step by Step and you know? all these songs I grew up with listening and singing in youth group. And it was just like such a joyous time. And it's like, how can I be having this joy in this jail cell, you know? But a lot of it, I always, I always think about like, this is exactly what paul and silas experienced you know and just that that the power of praise you know and it doesn't matter where you're at but that ability to pray Mm.
1: absolutely so you have this peace come over you but you still got a judge in front of you uh what is what is the next step in
2: your story um, the next step is just, you know, I mean, it was really right then where I decided that I was going to do the time instead of let let the time do me. So in part of that, you know, I started uh, taking GED classes because I didn't have I didn't finish high school. So my whole thought process was I'm going to take advantage of whatever time that I got because I didn't know what time, you know, my brother and I, we had court appointed lawyers that really didn't want to fight for us. So here we are in a situation where they're not doing anything for us. They're doing the least amount of um, support, um, fighting for us. I actually had to beg and plead him to put in for uh, uh, this thing called youthful offender status. So in Alabama, they have this uh, thing called youthful offender status where if you're granted it, the most time that you could get is a three-year sentence. So I begged and pleaded him, and he finally put in for it. So I'm standing before this judge, and he denies the motion. And then he says something I will never forget. He laughs, and he says, Rehabilitation is a 70-year-old joke. And I'm like, it was right then, I'm like, we are in trouble. If this (laughs) judge who's elected to like sentence folks and supposed to be about rehabilitation says that it's a joke... We are in trouble. And then I'm like, what is prison actually for then? And I mean, it's now I know that it's just about incapacitation, retribution, and deterrence. It's about making people, if you commit a crime, you're going to do the time. It's really not about preparing somebody to get out and to succeed after they've done their time. But um, so my brother and I, our lawyers, came to us with a plea. They said the only type of plea bargain that they're going to uh, to offer is a 25-year sentence. So, I mean, we were very green, and so we didn't know that we should have said no to see if they could have gone for another, charge, uh, another sentence. So we, we received 25-year sentences. And, I mean, when we went to prison, my whole mindset was, Again, just taking advantage of the time. So I was able to get my uh, a drafting trade. At one of the prisons, they had a theology class through the chapel. So I was able to get a Master's of Theology degree, even though it was unaccredited. But my whole mentality wasn't about um, just, like, I want all these certificates. It was about, I want to be a different David Garlock when I got out of prison than when I went in. And I my whole goal was just like to create this amazing relationship with God because of what he had done in my life up to that point. And just the opportunities I had to minister to folks in prison was amazing. But then also the last three years I served, I was able to do hospice work. So I was able to be a, a family to these men who really didn't have a family with them as they were dying. And I was able to pour into them and just love them. And it was some of the, the best time of my incarceration, but also the hardest because you would get so close to them and then you would see them die.
3: Right. David, I want to go back a little bit to your side comments about how we understand prison, how we understand justice, um, or you know how you know, a lot of people think of justice and what they're really talking about is retribution. Um, Just this is a really broad question, I know. But can you talk to us about some of the bigger issues with the current way that the prison system is structured? And what would a prison system look like that includes more um, rehabilitation rather than just, you know, because uh, I've heard people and people I know and love and am related to, and I'm not <laughs> going to mention on this, but have said that, um, and these people are, uh, you know, you could say so slightly racist or whatever, but that you know, all the people that are riding, looting, they need to go get, they need to get 20 years in prison, working hard, tooth and nail every day, you know, and, and there is that mindset, especially around where we live here in the Midwest, that prison is. A place of pure punishment that it's not as you said it's not to set up people for success afterwards it's pure punishment i know you disagree with that what do you think is the way forward and whatnot
2: well i I think one of the main things is we we need to step back and see who has been able to do incarceration well so in that we look at countries like sweden and germany and Switzerland, where they have a 20% recidivism rate. So 20% of the people that get out of prison go back. So that's 2 out of 10 people. That is not bad. When you think about Americans' recidivism rate is 60 to 65%, depending. So what they believe in is they believe in education. They believe in rehabilitation. They believe in humanity. They believe in treating somebody that's incarcerated not as a number, but as a person. Because I I, I like to tell people that prison is and, and people that are incarcerated we're like cattle. Because if you think about it, the way that I entered prison in Alabama is there were about twenty of us from the or about twelve of us from the county jail. We were herded into this gated area. We were herded into this building where we had to strip down and put on a, a jumpsuit. We're herded into this other building where all of us had to get our heads shaved, had to get our faces shaved, where we no longer had that um difference of appearance. We all looked the same. I mean, even though I mean there were some black people, brown people, so that was the difference. But otherwise, as far as everything else, we were the same. Then they came in with this uh, spray, and they sprayed us for lights. Then we had to get showered. Then we had to put on these uniforms that had our name and our our number stamped on it. So that was our brand. So here we are just being treated like cattle. So I think a lot of it, too, is when we go from treating somebody like herd of cattle to being a human you know is definitely important um the sentences you know are absurd mandatory minimums you have taken we in a lot of cases we don't need a judge because we have mandatory minimums that says okay the judge has no discretion here that if you commit uh If you commit a robbery, you're going to get 20 to 40 years. There's no question asked. So what's the purpose of having a judge? I mean, when judges were elected, they are supposed to have discretionary decision in sentencing. But a lot of cases, they don't. So we have to get away from that. Uh, Me personally, I think we need to get rid of the death penalty. I think we need to get rid of life without parole, we need to get rid of life sentences. I believe if you look at a lot of countries over there in Europe, the maximum sentence they give out is a 20-year sentence. So if you look at recidivism rates of people who have served more than 20 years, it's typically like 1.5 to 5.5%. So the people who have served an extended period of time they're not gonna to revert to committing another crime, you know? And I mean, here in here in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia has the largest group of um people, juveniles who had life without parole. So right now there's like hundred and twenty seven who've been released to the Philadelphia area. And out of that only two people have gone back to prison. So mm-hmm. that's like point five percent. Yeah, it's pretty good. So that shows you that individuals who have served a lot of time, they have been able to not only learn about themselves, but there's a thing in um, criminal justice, like if you study criminal justice, there's a theory called the life course theory. And what that means is somebody ages out of crime or they've had a certain life experience that changes their trajectory.
1: Absolutely. That sounds good, man. So what of your, what of your 25 year sentence did you serve and tell, tell our audience how you got connected with the lawyer, um, Brian Stevenson of
2: the, uh, just mercy, uh, fame. Yeah. So, um, I actually served 13 and a half years. And so I've actually been out of prison seven and a half years. So during that time I've been on parole. So in 2008, there was, a one of the guys I was serving time with was a client of Brian Stevenson. And so he introduced us and he started working with us. And he was looking at our cases, but there really wasn't anything that the uh, Equal Justice Initiative could do as far as appealing our case. So what they wanted to do was just to help us as far as uh, making parole and a reentry plan. So, in 2008, they started working with us. I didn't actually make parole until 2013. But, I mean, during that time, you know, probably the second or third visit, Brian Stevenson told me about Eastern University. So Eastern University is a Christian college outside of Philadelphia where he got his undergrad from. So I was in contact with them right after that. And, I mean, when he first told me about it, I was like, okay, this is pretty cool, you know, Christian University up in Philly. But then I got the pamphlet from them, and it talked about that they had a prison ministry and a street ministry. I was like, okay, this is great. This is amazing that a Christian university isn't saying that they believe in faith, reason, and justice, but they are actually got feet to it, you know, because there's a lot of times, you know, people will say – Yes, we believe in prison ministry. Yes, we believe in that. Uh, That's why we donate money to this prison ministry. It's like, okay, that's good and everything, but it doesn't say in Hebrews 13, 3, don't forget those who are in prison. It's like, okay, you got to do, put, like, action to it. Right. Mm. And then, you know, in 2013, I was released from prison on April 1st, 2013. So, just imagine getting out of prison on April Fool's Day. (laughs) There were actually two officers that wanted to joke around. They're like, oh, your paperwork hasn't come in. You can't go home. And I was like, okay, y'all know I like to joke around and have fun, but my freedom is not something I want to joke around about. Right. And so finally they're like, okay, go get dressed and get out of here. And so, uh I mean, it, it was an amazing experience, you know, just getting out and just, like, experiencing that freedom again, you know. And, I mean, I had been – while I was incarcerated, I tell a lot of people, though, that, you know, while I was in prison, I was just in a physical prison, you know, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, I was free. So, wow. I mean, in prison, I was freer than a lot of people out here, yeah, even yeah. though they don't want to realize that. Mm. So, so David,
3: if you could tell us a little bit about your spiritual transition, because I know you, you recounted that moment where you had that peace come over you and that joy when you're reading out the book of Revelation, but what happened from there? And was there a prison ministry that reached out to you? Was there a a mentor other than, or was it just you reading the Bible by yourself? Uh,
2: you know, what happened there? I mean, I'd actually say it was a, a a lot of all the above, you know? Okay. So, I mean, initially, you know, I was in, uh, the booking cell for seven days by myself. I went to, uh, a segregation cell for 30 days because they were still investigating our charge. So in those periods, you know, it was just reading the Bible myself. Uh, When I actually went to one of the dorms in the county jail, I actually went into e-dorm in Walker County Jail. And so there was this guy named Derek and another guy named Bodog. That was his nickname. And they were leading a Bible study every every day at lunchtime, and it was pretty much everybody in the dorm was there. So we had like 17 people in the dorm, and when we when I first moved in, everybody was there listening to it. We had it in the little day room, and after about a month, they, uh, Derek's like, hey, I want you to lead this a couple of times a week. And so I started helping lead it. And so there were definitely a lot of different Bible studies I got involved with, one that you know, was really powerful was um, uh, Crossroads Bible Institute. It's out of uh, Michigan, and they do a lot of work sending these. Like, it, and the thing I liked about it was it. You you get some Bible studies that are just like basic, like fill in the blank, like Jesus blank. Oh, Jesus wept. And what this was, you know, it actually had, like, went into systematic theology, it went into, like, more in-depth things, you know, and was asking you to really discern things about the Bible, you know, really dive in and and not just get that surface, surface level, like, it, uh, uh, knowledge about God, you know. It, it took you from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge and asked you to really plug in. And then in, in prison, you know, like the, the amazing different prison ministries that came in. And the church I attended when I got out, uh, it's predominantly black church down in Montgomery, Alabama. is called Fresh Anointing House of Worship. And the reason I went there when I got out is because of the individuals that came they came uh, on the fourth sunday of every month and the thing that was so powerful about them is they were so real they came in they they didn't try to act like they were better than anybody else they didn't come in with this uh like religious religiousosity you know mm-hmm. they came in and we're open. A lot of them had different experiences in their past. Some of them had been incarcerated. Some had dealt with drug addiction, stuff like this. And so we could relate to them. And so the the first Sunday I got out, I went to this church and... I went in, I was there early, I asked the usher, I'm like, hey, is anybody here from the prison ministry? They're like, not the men's prison ministry, but there's somebody from the women's prison ministry. I was like, hey, I'd love to meet him." So I got introduced, I was, I'm like, yeah, I just got out of prison on Monday. They're like, wow, they're so amazing. Let me introduce you to uh, Pastor Kimmy. So Pastor Kimmy was Bishop, is Bishop Kyle's wife. So I go up. She's from Ghana, Africa, and so she's amazing. So I'm talking to her, and it's like, hey, let me take you back and introduce you to Bishop Kyle. And so everybody in the church is like, yeah, you do not see Bishop Kyle before a service. That does not happen. I'm like, hey, it was favor." And so I go in. I talk to him. I'm like, yeah, you know, I just got out of prison. This. He's like, can I share your story from the pulpit? I'm like, yeah, go ahead. So I go back, I'm like worshiping and everything and he's like, can David Garlock please come up here? I was like <laughs> I was like, wow, really? I thought you were just gonna share, you know. So I go up, you know, and we talk a little bit and I share about the importance of their prison ministry, how it impacted me and how the first church I wanted to go to was Fresh Annoying House of Worship. So He's like, can we pray for you? I'm like, sure. He's like, uh, I'm like, what do you want? He's like, what do you want to pray for? I was like, a job, a car. He's like, how about a wife? I'm like, oh, one of those wouldn't be bad. <laughs> but what's funny about that, though, is when my wife and I actually got married, I hadn't had a car up to that point. So, my brother-in-law gave me a card. So, I got the wife and the car together. It was like right a on. good, like, two-for-one deal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is a, That's amazing.
2: But wait, that's not the end. There's so more. I'm walking down from the stage, and there's like six people that come up, and they shake my hand. But it's not just shaking my hand. They have money in their hand. I was like, this is kind of weird. So, I'm like putting this money in my pockets, and... Afterwards, the social worker that came with me from Equal Justice Initiative, she's like, how much money did they give you? I'm thinking like 40 or $50, you know. I wasn't thinking big, you know. And so I pulled this money out. First bill I opened up, guess what it was? 100 a <laughs> $100 bill. Who in 2013 goes to church with a $100 bill? <laughs> I'm just, like, looking at this. I'm just, like, in shock. I'm in awe. I start, like, getting teary-eyed. I'm like, what in the world? They gave me $239 that day, and that awesome. was the beginning of me saving for college, you know? And just that love, you know, and just that acceptance. And they didn't judge me by anything I did in my past. They were just loving me because I was a child of God.
1: That's awesome. That's so good. So. Crazy. I don't want to be a, a Debbie Downer, but you had a. am thankful that you had a good first experience at church. What was your experience like uh,
2: getting employment after prison? So, that, that was a whole different story, you know. <laughs> so, it took me about a month and a half to get my first job, but I don't know if I'd really considered a job because I only had it for one day and two hours. So... It was a Friday, 11 a.m. I go into this restaurant just right down the street from Equal Justice Initiative. And what's actually amazing is I've been told, like last year I was told, that no one from Equal Justice Initiative has ever gone back to this restaurant after this incident. So I was like, wow, this is pretty powerful. Yeah. So I go in, I fill out the application. I come to the point where it says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I check it. I put, we'll discuss an interview. So I have an interview right on the spot. They never ask me the question, have you been convicted of a felony?" So I'm like, hey, this is great. They're not going to ask me. This is the first place that hasn't asked me about this. So they're like, okay, you can start today at 4 o'clock. So I go back to Equal Justice Initiative, work for a couple hours, come back here. I work from 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. And I'm jamming. I'm, like, in there washing dishes like they've never seen before. And I was making $7.50 an hour minimum wage. So during the night, I'm, like, washing dishes with one hand, and the kitchen manager's bringing me three different plates of food. So I'm washing dishes food with one hand. And he's just loving this because he hasn't seen somebody, like, work as hard as I did. And so... I leave and I walk home. And so it takes, it took me about 40 minutes to walk home. So I'm walking home. I'm feeling excited. I have this job. I'm not worried that I'm only making 750 an hour because I have a job. I come in Saturday at four o'clock, working 530. The general manager was like, Hey, can I talk to you outside? I was like, okay. So I go outside. She's like, uh, I see that you mark that you have a felony on your application? I was like, yes, ma'am. She's like, can you tell me about it? And so I tell her the story. I'm like, this is what happened to my brother and me. This is what I did while I was in prison. This is my goals and my hopes. She's like, okay, uh, I have to fire you because we can't have somebody with a violent offense working here. Is company policy. So I go from this extreme high mm-hmm. to this extreme low within like 24 hours. And what Is A blessing about that, though, is I find a better job a week later where I'm making $9 an hour and I get hired because I was open and honest with the owner of the company. He had never hired somebody with a background before, but because I was open and honest and shared everything about what had happened to my brother and me, he hired me. And I was making $9 an hour washing dishes. And I only was washing dishes for three days and got promoted. Uh But a week after I started this job, the kitchen manager at the other company, at the other restaurant I run into, he's like, hey, do you want to come back to work for me? I'm like, wait, what? I was like, I was fired because of my background. He's like, oh, we don't have a policy like that. That was the general manager, that was her issue. So, one thing that we have to realize is that when people have a background, you not only have to deal with a company policy, but you have to deal with individuals' biases and stereotypes and stigmas themselves, you know? And that's another thing that is difficult because if you have somebody that has this distorted view about somebody who's been incarcerated, it can prevent somebody from getting employment and succeeding in life. So my
1: understanding is that question about being convicted of a felony is not only on job applications but on um, college applications sometimes as well. How do you And feel housing about
2: that? and housing? Okay, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I think I already know. I, I don't think that it should be on any of them because the the thing that we also have to realize is you know it's not just the fact that they're asking this. But it's the fact of how much shame, how much anxiety that causes on somebody who fills out an application. I I have talked to so many people who have a background who never finished filling out a college application because they came across that question. Because the, the thing is, is You think in your mind, is this person going to accept me? How are they going to receive me? What do I have to do to make them understand and realize I'm not that person I was 21 years ago? And so, I mean, I still deal with the fact and, and dealing with that as far as housing. So I've been out of prison seven and a half years. I have never had an apartment or a house in my name. Yeah. I've always had to have co-signers. The house my wife and I have right now is in her name because we didn't know how the banks would react. We didn't know how anybody would react to my background. And so that's the thing. You know, there's so many collateral consequences that people who have backgrounds have to deal with.
1: Absolutely. Um, I appreciate your time, and we're we're running over time, but I hope you're okay with that. Um so you're in the movie Just Mercy. There's there's a scene around like the 20-minute mark, I think, where you tell a little bit about your story. What was that experience like uh, having that opportunity, and how did that come about?
2: Well, I mean, it was an amazing opportunity, and it, it's something that I am still just baffled about and just the way that God, you know, opens doors. And I always think about that verse in Proverbs where it talks about that, you know, our gifts will put us amongst kings and other people, you know, and it is so true. You know, I, uh, in 2018, I was in Washington, D.C., and I got to meet the Honorable Betsy DeVos, you know. I mean, I don't know how many people are going to be like, oh, I love her or whatever, <laughs> but the thing is, is just, you know, being able to be at the same table with somebody who had so much power, you know, is it's incredible, you know, and just to think where I was and where I am now. But so the, the way I got in the movie is in August of 2018, Brian Stevenson sent me a text. He's like, Hey, I got this pretty cool opportunity that I think you'd like. I was like, okay. And so I called and talked to him. He's like, uh, yeah. Hey, do you want to be in a movie? I'm like, is i'm thinking is that really a question you have to ask somebody it's like (laughs) come on just sign me up right and so what he was telling us is that there were four roles in the movie just mercy that were just like some people that were incarcerated that um michael b jordan who's playing brian stevenson would be interviewing and so brian stevenson wanted four of his clients to play those roles instead of four actors because we had the lived experience we we know what it's like to be in prison with those experiences. And so just, like, the the thought process that he had in wanting us to be in those roles is amazing, you know. And it just shows you his heart and the way that he wants to change the narrative. That he wants people to get proximate and get close to the actual stories. And so when we went down in September, we were there September 5th, 2018, in Atlanta filming. And we thought that we were going to get there and they were going to hand us a script. Yeah. But it wasn't. Each one of us sat in front of the camera for 18 to 20 minutes sharing our own story. So wow. aspects of our own story are the lines that we have in the movie. And that's a, a thing that's really amazing, too, is yeah. that our story are part of this amazing, incredible story that's impacting so many people and causing people to have a conversation about systematic racism, having a conversation about mass incarceration, having a conversation about what is real justice, what is just mercy, what is it, you know, and so it's amazing um, just opportunity to be involved with that conversation.
1: My daughter would want me to ask you, is Michael B. Jordan as beautiful in person as he is on the screen?
2: (laughs) What's funny is like so many people ask that, you know, and it's always like, sure. Yeah. okay. (laughs) But what was cool is, you know, we got a chance to talk to Michael B. Jordan for about 30 to 40 minutes after we filmed. And he was thanking us for being in the movie. And it's like, no, oh, thank you for doing this, you know, and he was just so down to earth, you know, and he's just like listening to everything that we're talking about and uh, just hearing the, the different um, conversations he had about this movie and just playing Brian Stevenson was always amazing, you know, so yeah, absolutely right on. Yeah,
3: man. Um, David, I just have one quick question that's outstanding my mind. How's your brother doing?
2: Uh, my brother's doing well. Um, he actually just uh, passed the... Um, so he was working for the same company for about 10 years, uh, and he had worked to where he was the manager. So he wanted a change, and so he had been trying to um, get into um, truck driving, and so he could never find a school that would accept him and so recently he found one and so he just uh was able to obtain his class a cdl so awesome. he's definitely excited about that and that opportunity there and what it's gonna um present for him
1: did he get out the, around the same time you did
2: he actually got out before i did so he got out in 2009 okay and so and i mean he's been able to to just succeed you know yeah. and so that's what's been amazing Right on. Well, hey, our, our listeners are primarily Christians. What would you, uh,
1: what would you encourage Christians to do to advocate for true justice? And what can we do in the meantime while we're waiting for uh, and praying for systems to change? What
2: can we as individuals do? Um, I'd say individually, I'd say the the main thing is that we have to stop judging people by their past you know, I mean, God doesn't judge us by our past, you know, it talks about that our sins is as far as the East is from the West, you know, yeah. so we have to take that same thought process, you know, and, uh, first John, it, it talks about, you know, that we have to abide like Jesus abide, you know, and we have to ask, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus treat these people with backgrounds, you know, yeah. um, there's, I'd say another thing is we have to use our voice, you know. We have to talk to senators. We have to talk to legislators. We have to talk to um, individuals as far as sentencing, you know, because when people think about criminal justice reform, too many people believe that it is stuff like the First Step Act. The First Step Act only... Impacted federal people that were incarcerated with federal offenses. Okay. so that act doesn't help people that are incarcerated in the county jails or state prisons. So we have to have more conversations in each and every state to bring about criminal justice reform. Um, where if there's reentry programs around you, participate, volunteer. Get in there, you know. There's too many people that believe that prison ministry is just about going into a prison. Yes, that's good and everything, but we need more people involved with reentry programs because that's where the most help is needed. Because if we just have people going in while they're in prison, who's going to be there to walk with them when they get out? Mm-hmm. Um, we all know the the African proverb that says it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. My spin on that is it takes a village to allow a returning citizen or somebody coming out of prison to be successful. So it takes the person's family. It takes the person's community. It takes a place of faith. It takes employers. It takes support group to come around this individual and to speak life into them, to allow them to know that they can succeed. Because for so long, they've been told that they're worthless. They're a piece of trash. They're never going to succeed. So having people from the local church coming in and speaking life to them is powerful. And so in Proverbs, it talks about life and death are in the power of the tongue. So we have to be able to, to speak life into people.
1: No doubt about it. So you mentioned it earlier in passing. Can you give us a little bit more detail uh, about where God has you now and the work that you're doing? I, I find it very ironic, but very much what God does, <laughs> the kind of thing that God does.
2: Yeah, so... um the i was in a position for three years where i was the program director of a uh, christian reentry home that worked with uh, men who have committed sexual offenses and so really what i do now is i'm still in that sphere and i'm just advocating nationally for this population because um when society thinks that 60 to 80 percent of people who have committed a sexual offense are going to commit another sexual offense but if you look at statistics the statistics statistics show that only 1.5 to 5.5 percent of people who have committed a sexual offense will commit another sexual offense and so really one of the main things that I do in this work is I'm educating people, but I'm also working on changing the narrative. So society wants to call this individual a sex offender. But if you call this person a sex offender, you're saying this is who they are intrinsically. They can never change. And so I work on helping people change their language. And so I never call these men or women a sex offender. I call them a person who has either been convicted of a sexual offense or somebody who's committed a sexual offense. And so what you do with that language is you take them away from the action. Yes, they committed a certain act, but that doesn't define who they are. I mean, society could easily say that I'm a murderer, but I tell people I'm a man who committed a murder. And so it's the same thing as far as Christians. Do we always want to have somebody continue to tell us that we're a sinner? Mm
1: -hmm. Right.
2: No. I mean, if I come up to you, hey, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, everybody's they're like, "Uh, no, that's who I was. You know, that's my old man, you know, that's been crucified, you know. And so it's the same thing as far as our past, you know. And so... The one thing that's always interesting is that even within criminal justice reform work, the people that have committed a murder or people who have committed a sexual offense are typically the group of individuals that are left out of all reform. So really one of the things I am doing is trying to bring these populations into the conversation. And at times it's difficult because people are so... um, hard on this population. And so it's just about education. It's about having conversations. Because when I was working in Lancaster, I was able to have conversations with employers who were thinking about hiring the guys I worked with. But after I was able to have a conversation and educated them, they were like, yeah, send me your guys. I will hire them. And so when we're able to humanize people and to say that this is not just this label that you see but this is a human being it changes everything
3: Hmm. right i couldn't agree with it more man um this has been an incredible conversation incredible um and this is just this isn't a question but this is just my own comment i just you know you hear all the time about the redeeming power of God, the grace of God, the the restoration that God is bringing. You know, we have, we've had the pl- the pleasure of having amazing guests on this podcast, people like just crazy awesome theologians, and 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 one that we had on was Cheryl Bridges Johns, and she talked about how the eschaton, the, the end of all things that God is bringing forth. But but people think of the end of the world in terms of like a negative light, but it's it's bringing God's restoration to the present. Okay, well, that's kind of abstract. It's theological. That's like, you know, something we people can sit around and drink coffee and talk about it, you know, in their theological terms. But you're living proof, man. Like, you're the real deal. Like, the life, the work that God has done in your life is tangible evidence that God is still in the redeeming business. And... I love that, and I hope our listeners out there have been blessed as much as we have having this conversation. Um, So I just wanted to ask you, we ask every single guest this question, the very last question of the podcast is, what does prayerfully woke mean to you when you hear it?
2: Um, Prayerfully woke means that, you know, that you're in this constant contact with God. It's kind of like, you know, the, the the thought process in First Thessalonians where it says pray without ceasing, you know. And it's just having that constant contact with God and then just understanding where you are, where your life has brought you, and being able to use that to impact other people and to help awaken them and allow them to understand life from a different perspective because too many times we expect everybody to be in the same place or have the same knowledge, you know, and it's important for all of us to come together with our different stories, with our different experiences to impact others and to give a different perspective.
1: Right on. Great answer, brother. Where can people connect to you and, um, uh, if people were touched, I'm sure they were by your story, but if people I like, can have firsthand relation to what you talked about today, is there a place where people can connect
2: to you the best? Um, I'm on uh, both Twitter and Facebook, uh, David Lee Garlock. Um, if they want to email me, it's D Garlock N pm at gmail.com. And if anybody wants to bring me to, to speak somewhere, you could reach me at speaker at gmail.com. And one thing that I'm trying to do too more right now is, you know, I've spoken at a lot of universities. One thing I'd really love to do is do more speaking in churches, you know, and just being able to preach, share my story in, in a, a way like that.
1: Right on, man. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your testimony. We're thankful for what God has done in your life. Uh, And we know that you got a baby coming, so we're praying for you and your growing family. We're excited about that. And, uh, hey, everybody, thanks for listening in. God bless and peace.